A few months ago, one of the biggest food and beverage companies in the world made the decision to sell off its bottled water operation to two private equity firms. There is some speculation that the reason that they did this was because of the bad press they were getting around that operation for the last few years. Bad press because of their bad behavior, to be precise. A few years ago, an investigation revealed that this company was helping itself to water that it wasn't entitled to. Fast forward to 2020, when the company pulled 58 million gallons out of public aquifers, when they were only entitled to 2.3 million gallons. So if you're doing the math there, it's 25 times more water than they should have had access to. And that was only in California. The company faced similar accusations in other states. What made the situation particularly concerning was that at the time, the West Coast farmers were struggling because of state-mandated water rationing and firefighters feared that they weren't gonna have enough water to fight the wildfires that seemed to be an annual occurrence in California. On this episode of Think Significantly, we're gonna talk about what happens when individuals, to include individual entities like corporations, neglect the well-being of society in pursuit of personal gain and how the self-interested behavior causes everyone to eventually and inevitably suffer. Hello, everyone. My name is Melissa, and I have with me on this and every podcast my or concor co-host Pete. Hello, Melissa, and hello to all the listeners. This seems like a big topic, and in the interest of trying to save everyone's time, I suggest we jump right into it. Are you implying that time is a shared commodity? I might well be. We will only be able to sleuth that out at the end of the podcast. Uh, so why don't we? get started and, and you can go ahead and tee it up for us. All right, so the example that I use in the introduction has a name, it's called Tragedy of the Commons. Mm. And while commons here refers to those things that we share communally, this is all too common. So a little bit of play on words there. Yeah. There are three traits that a good must have to fit the definition of a common. Okay, lay, lay them on me, let's hear them. All right, so one, it's gotta be rivalrous, which means only one person can use it, and while they're using it, no one else can. So it's like the old telephone, one in your house. If you were on it, your sister couldn't use it. Right. right. You know what that's like. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Right. It also has to be scarce. So it's limited or finite. Mm. And in addition to that, it has to be non-excludable, which means that there's no way for one user to prevent another user from accessing the good. It's essentially first come, first serve. Okay, sure. So, so the example of the water in the in the public aquifers meets meets all of those. Right, and I take sincere joy in saying aquifer. I just I, have to. I do enjoy that. Yes. Right, it's a good one. I'm going to keep yeah. working it into my daily dialogue. Yes. So, so yes, there's clearly competition for that water supply. Only one user can use it at a time. There's no way to get a reserve portion of the water so others can get to it. So, check, check, check. We're checking all the boxes here. Well, not to not to be contrarian, but I think there's one more box left to check. And that's, uh, how's it gonna be a tragedy if we don't have someone acting selfishly? Oh, right, right, right. Okay, so good catch. So my example has that too. All good stories have the villain, this is no exception. Yes, in my specific example, um, that siphoning off of extra water was a definite reflection on the view that 
upper management of that company held. In 2005, the then CEO of that company said that he thought that designating water as a human right was extreme. Yes, you don't get water. No, mm -hmm. no water for you. And then expressed that it should be viewed as a for-profit commodity. Wow. Yeah. Here, yeah. here I thought water was uh, the basis of, of, of life as we know it. If you can buy it. Right. Yes. <laughs> right. Exactly. Pete, no, water is to be exploited to make a profit. Hello. Goodness. Yeah. And because this guy has a business that monetizes it, like he wants to make sure it's being seen as a consumer good. I mean, hopefully you're picking up on my sarcasm. I, yeah, no, I definitely, uh, yeah, there, I, I picked up just a, just a tinge, just a tinge of disdain. Yes. Um, but you know, that it, it occurs to me that, that we shouldn't forget just basic economics here. Uh, mm -hmm. When supply goes down, demand goes up and yeah. forcing the state of California into, into water rationing consistently is probably really good for the sale of bottled water. I I would think. So uh, yeah, I understand why this is called a tragedy. Yes, and if you're if you've ever been in the city and it's not raining, you can get an umbrella for three bucks. As soon as it starts raining, it's now ten bucks. Right, exactly. Right, hundred percent. Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So let's talk about the origins of this. Let's do that. The origins of selfish behavior. Uh, I do not think we can go back in our way back time machine that far. No. Uh, I, let's. I want to talk about. Uh, when someone finally named it, when someone came up with this. Oh, yes. yeah, 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 no, cool. Yeah, let's do that. Because I know you're familiar with this. We already talked yes, about it. Of course. All right, okay. So here's the deal. The term was introduced in 1968 in Science Magazine by Garrett Hardin. And he was referring to a 1933 economic theory that was put forward by William Foster Lloyd, which is, if there ever was a name, that would be it. Yeah, no, it sounds like you should be a poet or an architect or something. Right? I need to have my smoking jacket on when I say this. <laughs> yes. Right, right, right. So, tragedy of the commons. That theory outlines the impact that individual behaviors have on a shared resource, which is also referred to as a common. Uh -huh. When some users of that shared resource act in their own interest, they run the risk of depleting the resource and thereby deprive all of the users using it. Right, all of, all of the users' access to it, including themselves. Yeah, specifically, Lloyd saw the the cattle in England looking thin, uh, yep. and he was curious. He he wanted to. He was thinking significantly about why they were such such a way. Mm -hmm. uh, he knew that cattle grazed on public lands, uh, and those lands were available to all the farmers in the area, and he theorized then that certain farmers motivated by their self-interest were overgrazing the land and, and it, it was leaving cows from other farmers herds with a scarcity of food yeah and so just to be clear that overgrazing of the land means that that one farmer was putting more cows out there that's yeah. what that is right yeah so you got this limited amount of land you got a limited amount of grass on that land that finite resource can support a certain number of animals for a certain amount of time. Mm -hmm. And as long as the collective number of animals doesn't exceed that critical number, that land will continue to support them. Right. But if you've got these farmers, they start adding in more cows because hello, more animals mean more profit for them. The land reaches that critical tipping point. The benefit is limited to the farmer, but the cost of that extra animals, those extra animals is being shared 
among everybody else. Everyone else is kind of taking it in the shorts for one guy's gain. <laughs> right. And, and of course, I mean, this goes without saying, but as more animals graze, the grass isn't able to grow back quickly enough. Right. And, and before very long, the land is barren. Mm-hmm. And that means none of the farmers can feed their animals. Yep. So because they're acting on their own self-interest without regard to how their actions are affecting those around them, they end up destroying the land and then everyone suffered, including themselves. Exactly. I, I feel your mental whiteboard on this. Mm. You're like, you think you're having an advantage, but ha ha ha. Right. <laughs> right. It's like shooting yourself in the foot, but there's like this time delay. Yeah. Well, this is only one example though. Right. I mean, I, I know that you and I could come up with a ton of, of different examples, how this model fits over a, a plethora of issues. Think air pollution, think industrial fishing, as I know you I do. Yeah, I am one. Yes. Yeah. A lot of industrial fishing thoughts go across your brain, I know. Savings and loan prices, congestion on the highway, even items in low Earth orbit. Yes. Holy cow. Right? Jeez, space. Space. We're, we're talking about we're talking about some huge systems there. Like like literally space. Space. Uh, but uh how about if I bring it down to a more granular level? One one that we as individuals have some ability to influence. Okay. I don't own any cattle, so I don't know where you're going with this. <laughs> I know you own, I know you own a trawler though. And I know that you like to get out <laughs> fish. So there you go. All right. So I'm raising my proverbial eyebrow. I'm intrigued. What is your granular example? <clears throat> okay. Well, this, this actually isn't going to be a huge surprise to you. This is something that you and I have, have talked about at length before, and that's shopping carts. Oh, I thought you were going to say the Ubuntu tribe. No, yeah, yeah no, not in no. this, not in this case. Sawabona. Okay, yeah. no, shopping carts. Yes, yes. The old, do you return your shopping cart after you were done using it discussion, which reached new heights of consideration during the pandemic because there was this parallel that was drawn between it and one consideration for their fellow man. Right, and, and yeah, and it's and it's totally relevant here, right? I yeah. think I think we can draw correlations between those big systems that you're talking about the mm-hmm. you know pollution on a on a national or global scale mm-hmm. uh, and the things that we see in our local grocery store parking lots we we see similar behavior and similar motivations but it's at the individual level okay i can yeah i definitely see how this plays in okay so let me see the scene let me set the scene rather i will see the scene in my head and then i'll set the scene so you can see <laughs> the scene in your head all right okay right Okay, picture it, Sicily. Okay, you have this grocery store parking lot. You've got parking, you've got corrals for the carts, the buggies, the wagons, the carriages, whatever the heck you call them in your, in your spirit of yeah. Right, yes. So the construct is designed so that after shoppers are done with their carts, after getting their goods to their car, they're able to return the car to the collection point so the store can quickly and efficiently replenish the, the store's carts periodically. It's a, it's a system, Pete. Exactly, no, right. and. And the dilemma is that some people refuse to participate in the system. These uh, independent thinkers keep mm. the system from working as designed. And, and the reasons they buck the system are, I, I think, provide good insight into why having goods that are considered commons, and I hope you could hear my air quotes in there, will, mm-hmm. will always end up in, uh, in tragedy. 
Well, one, I love how you frame them as independent thinkers. That was very kind of you. <laughs> Probably the best definition. Two, tragedy sounds very dismal and depressing. Just going to say. Yeah, well, and it doesn't have to end in tragedy. That's, that's kind of my point. Uh, only, right? Only you can prevent forest fires. Or only you can ensure shopping cart replenishment. Except, except no, not, not only I can prevent it. And that is, that's precisely why people, uh, I would imagine, mm-hmm. don't participate in the shopping cart system. So, so let's break this down. Um, anthropologist Crystal DeCosta identified five types of shopping cart users. Um, did you say there's five types of shopping cart users? Yeah, no, I, 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 I shit you not. This is actually, there's been a little bit of, of study put toward this. I, I believe I'm shocked at what is, what is not studied these days. Let's put it that way. Everything seems to have been studied, but okay. Yes. I'm not familiar with the five types of shopping, shopping cart users, but I definitely want to hear about what, who they are. Go okay. Ahead. Well, here goes <clears throat> the five types of shopping cart users that, that the cost identified are the first category is returners. So uh-huh. these are people that always return their carts, regardless of the circumstances. Okay, mm-hmm. they're, they feel a sense of, of civic responsibility uh, for getting carts back where they belong. Oh, this is me, c'est moi, yes. My sense of duty is very strong. I, I do not doubt that, nor am I surprised by that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so then we've got uh, never returners, which is fairly self-explanatory. They don't, right. they don't care where the carts come to rest and believe that the responsibility for them falls squarely on someone else's shoulders. Uh, yes, of course. Uh, there are convenience returners. Mm-hmm. Uh, these people, they will return their carts, but only if there aren't hurdles to overcome. So, so the collection point can't be too far away and the weather has to be nice, for example. These are, these are path of least resistance people. I see. So it has to be convenient, hence the name. All right, got right, it. Got right, all right. And then next we have we have pressure returners. Uh, uh, these people will only return the carts, right? They'll only participate in the system if they know someone is watching them. Whether whether it's a cart attendant that's that's out in the in the lot doing their thing, mm-hmm. or uh, uh, you know someone sitting in a vehicle nearby, they're they're motivating by avoiding judgment. So sometimes I have tried to use my Jedi mind power tricks to get folks to do the right thing, but inevitably they turn out to be in that never returner genre. It's just lost on them. Yeah, yeah. no, yeah, totally. Yep, nope, Mm-mm. Yeah. So the last category right. is child-driven returners. Child-driven uh, returners. Yeah, child-driven, <laughs> right, right. Yes. Um, and these people, they, they use returning the carts it's like a functional thing for them um they use it as a means to give their children an extra ride in the cart before before they get in the car uh what yeah yeah believe it or not this is this is a category big or or enough people did this to make it a its own category um and i and i would add uh and i don't know that that this necessarily uh, applies to this definition but as someone with older children I use returning carts as a way to give responsibility to my kids, you know, to let them take the, take the carts 
the 10 or so feet over and, and let them participate in the system and let them get a feel for it. You, you got to train them up right, Pete. Yeah, Hello? right, right. All right. Well, I've got to look up the study. I, I got to know how many people are taking back their car just to give their kid an extra ride in a buggy. This cannot be a large number of folks. What kid is begging for five more minutes straddling a metal grate? They just were in there the last hour in the frozen food section. Like, who are these children? Who are these parents? What's going on here? Yeah, and we can we can post the uh, we can post the article to our social media so everybody can can look into it. All right. Um, I think that'd be a great idea. But but you know what? Let's do since we're talking social media, let's do some research of our own. We okay. can, we'll put the, uh, we'll put the, the article up there, but let's do a poll on our social media accounts uh -huh. and see how, uh, see how our significant others get broken down between these categories. All right. So I don't want to wait for the big reveal. What are you, Pete? I'm an always returner, like to a fault, middle of a hailstorm, locust swarm, throat of zombies, <laughs> doesn't matter. Cicadas? The car is going back. That's where it belongs. Do you, do you brave the cicadas to get to get them back? Heck yes. Hell yeah. <laughs> if, if not me, then who? You know? <laughs> yes. Oh, Lord. Uh, uh, no, I'm with you. I'm with you. No matter the situation, I'm, I'm taking my cart back. I'm putting it away. And, and if I can grab up some some strays along the way, then, then I will. I mean, I'm a, I'm a convenience returner when it comes to other people's cards. Oh, I see. Do you don like a fluorescent vest? I would, if I had one. Well, that can be arranged. I will drone <laughs> it to your home right now. Sir. All right. I, I seem to remember you telling me not to wear a vest though. So I... <laughs> no vest, no cape, no vest. Yes. <laughs> so I'm, I'm super interested to see what our listener breakdown is, but back to the topic. All right. For the people that aren't always returners, the more common excuses given for not returning carts included. Oh, uh, I can't wait. Uh, what's that? I said, I cannot wait. Oh. <laughs> Just, I cannot wait to hear why people cannot take a shopping cart back. Go. Yeah. So the receptacle is too far away from where they park their car. Yes. Right. That's a convenience thing. Um, they have a child who may not want to leave unattended. I get that one. Makes sense. Yeah. The the weather is bad. Let someone else brave the weather, right? Not right. them. Yeah. Right, 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 right. Uh, they have a disability that is prohibitive to easy movement. Makes total sense. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Yes. Um, oh, the the perception that it's someone else's job to collect the carts. Of course it is. Yes. And, uh, and oh, and they're leaving the carts for someone else to easily pick up and use. Right there where you're parked. So right. someone can ding their Escalade and then, oh, fancy this, a exactly. cart right here for me. Exactly. Yes, got it. Oh, man, I'm so upset that I now have this scratch down the side of my car, but look at it, it's right here for me to grab. Right here, as opposed yeah. to two spaces over in the right. crowd, yes. Right. Or or at the entrance to the store, you know, mm -hmm. weird. Yeah, weird. Well, that was, that was interesting to me, what you were just saying. Some of those make total sense. The child, the disability, I get it. Sure. Yeah. I, I have been curious about the why behind this phenomenon for a long time, because what's super interesting to me is that the people who don't participate in cart returnage are very proud of the fact, like they've, they voluntarily put this information out into the universe. And I'm like, why would you reveal this about yourself? Like, I'm not like, what a great person doesn't return their cart. Um, where I'm getting at is I actually, I've, I've heard this because I've asked before. I've been like, why, why? I'm so right. curious. 
And I have heard, I've heard people say that it's along the lines of being a job creator, if you will. Hmm. Uh, leaving their cart behind allows for a paid worker to take a break from the regular store tasks to come outside and collect up the carts. <laughs> yeah. A break. Right. You know, you know what I like to do on my breaks? <laughs> At work. Yeah. I like to I like to just stroll around the parking lot picking up trash <laughs> and uh, you know, just doing general maintenance around the, the company's grounds. That, that it just it gives me this sense of calm uh, so I can go back into work refreshed. Right. Yes. You're going to need this vest after all. Yes. I, I, <laughs> yeah. I 100% make this a part of my meditative practice. For yeah. Right. Right, Absolutely. right. Right. Yeah. Yes. Yes. I wouldn't, I wouldn't be the same person without uh, being able to pick up other people's stuff. Yeah. I wouldn't be. <laughs> yes. So true. Right. Yeah. yeah. Well, and you know, it's a shame that more people aren't like us because uh, research tells us that, that people are going to follow the norms for their in-groups. Okay. So uh, there, there are two types of influence um, to establish those norms. And they're, they're injunctive and they're descriptive norms. All right. So suss this out for us. I don't want to look this up right now. I don't want to invoke Dr. Google. What's <laughs> the difference between these two types of norms? Tell okay, us. So, okay, right. So injunctive norms uh, we are the ones we follow because we think our actions will change people's opinion of us. Okay. Okay. So we're doing it because we want people to think a certain way about us. Okay. Descriptive norms are when we follow the examples of those around us. So, mm -hmm. so we mimic their behavior to fit in. Um, and, and both of these, the norms compete with our own self-interest to help shape our behavior. So, so when we assess that our personal need, uh, whether it's to... <sighs> I don't know, get our child to practice on time. Mm -hmm. uh, when that outweighs the influence of these norms, then we act in self-interest. But I got to say, Pete, that one bad apple can spoil the bushel. I, I've seen this in effect. There's that one shopping cart left stranded alone in the parking lot, despite 50 of them being in the corral. And that one shopping cart left stranded sends a message to everyone like, oh, it's okay. Look, so, you know, someone else did it. I don't have to return my cart. This behavior is totally acceptable. Yeah, right. That's right. It, it sends it sends that exact message for that exact norm. But you know what's fascinating is adjacent norms influence our behavior as well. Mm -hmm. uh, in a there's a study published in Science in 2008 that showed that situations where norms were in flux affected people's behavior. We are really drawing hard on Science Magazine today, aren't we? Hey, that's it's got a ton of good stuff in there. <laughs> We're covering like decades of it. Yes, yeah, right, exactly. Right. Yes. No, by the way, they're not a sponsor. So <laughs> no, yeah. but now I'm going to renew my subscription. <laughs> yes. Right. So uh, so in the scenario, in, in, in the study, in one of the scenarios, the researchers place flyers on the windows of vehicles in a parking garage that, you know, the parking garage served a, a grocery store and some other businesses. And then they, they monitored the behavior of the car owners uh, with, when they, when they changed the, the, the scenario. So the first scenario was all the shopping carts were placed neatly in receptacles. And okay. then the second, they left the carts scattered in an unorganized manner. 
Uh-huh. And the results were that 28% more people ended up littering by throwing the flyers on the ground oh. when the shopping carts were not put away. Oh, what? Are you serious? Yeah. So it's like their whole, they were, they're like, everything's a mess. I will make it more of a mess. Like, bleh, like that. That's exactly it. That's so that it. shopping conundrum has bigger effects than just the shopping cart system at Drapigly Wiggly. No, absolutely. Yeah. The, the one person, just one person failing to return their shopping cart, not only does it give others permission to do the same, but it gives them permission to break adjacent ones like litter. Uh, and, you know, many other things like like it would extend to making sure your car is fully in the in the parking space designation you know Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. just all these all these social cues that we follow yeah the norms and the morays right yeah right once once you see one being violated it gives Mm -hmm. you permission to violate the others Mm -hmm. interesting that's a slippery slope for sure and and, you know, as we've already brought up, per the tragedy of commons, the selfish actors end up ruining things for everyone, inclu- including themselves, though. I think that's, that's right. what we have to keep coming back to. Yeah. So if we keep sticking with our scenario about the shopping carts, when the carts aren't put away, you also have to think about those secondary impacts that include longer times to find parking, longer walks to get to the store once parked that increased currents of damage to cars from carts that roll into them, like our Escalade example a minute ago. No, absolutely, right. And and you know what other impact it has? Mm. Re- retrieving the carts is like like we mentioned before, it's usually an, an additional duty. Like pe- most stores don't have people whose sole purpose there is to collect carts. Mm-hmm. So this these are your, your, your baggers, your cashiers, your stock people mm-hmm. um, that, that uh, have to take a break from their normal duties to go out and, and police up the strays. Mm-hmm. And while they're doing that, there are fewer of them available to check out customers. So checking checkout times take longer for everybody. And the more loose carts there are, the longer it's going to take them to collect it and the longer they'll be short cashiers. So it's, so, it's, it's yeah. a repetitive, it's a, it's a whole thing. Mm-hmm, it is. So if I have this, if I had this fantasy in my head that I was giving people a break from their normal jobs to come out and wrestle 20 straight cards from a football field sized parking lot, I would be kidding myself is what you're telling you, me. Yeah, I'm, I'm sad to say you would be. Yes. And the more employees who are out in the parking lot fetching carts or doing a number of other tasks that have cropped up because we have a small collective of individuals who don't want to do their part to keep the system going, those independent thinkers that you mentioned before now i have longer lines right right? my shelves are less stocked so whereas i might think like huh i'm getting away with not doing something with no real consequence there is a consequence but it's like delayed dissatisfaction it's not really going to catch up to me until the next time i'm in the store in a long line when i'm trying to muster contentment for a can of peas because the shelf was barren of mixed veggies Yes, that's that is exactly the rub. That, well, I mean, maybe not the mixed vegetables precisely, but the fact that with the tragedy of the commons, people envision the payoff for themselves mm-hmm. to be so much greater than the shared cost that their behavior nets them. When when in reality, they just they aren't taking a big enough picture 
of the situation and not seeing the full consequences of their actions. Right. They're not thinking long enough out. Like they are now going to be on the other end. The, yes. The end that is disserviced eventually. Right. right. They're saving themselves, what, 15 seconds of returning a cart and, and mm -hmm. 20 steps. And in yeah. the end are going to end up giving back so much more because of the chaos that they're introducing into the system. Mm -hmm. Giving up, not voluntarily, but right. because they are. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So this applies. Yeah. Shopping carts, clean air drinking water, land for your cattle degrees on. We could go on and on. And, 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 and some of those things are pretty important to us. You know, it's, this is making me think of whether or not uh, Joni Mitchell saw this all coming when she sang that, that we don't know what it's got, what we've got till it's gone. Where they paved paradise and put up a parking lot. That's yeah, that's the one. With shopping, shopping cart corrals. That last part was insinuated in the song. Yeah, no, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, that right. That just didn't, it didn't work into the rhyme scheme. Right. <laughs> Maybe on the remake. Right, right, right. right. No, that, yeah. yeah, that's a great point. We can call the Counting Crows and see if they can uh, come up with a with a part two. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Did you do a remake of your remake? Yeah. yeah. Right, right, right. Yeah. So the whole gist of the tragedy of the commons is that things that used to be plentiful are disappearing. And this reveals a key deficiency in the way we as a society are thinking about these resources in the present day. Because I think an important thing to realize about all of these scenarios that we're talking about is that the planet's population is outpacing the planet's ability to sustain us. Right. No, absolutely. Right. Times, times have changed. Um, when, when settlers first expanded west, hunting, fishing, logging, clean water, uh, they were essentially limitless. There weren't, there weren't enough people drawing on those systems. Mm -hmm. uh, to endanger the supply in any way. Mm -hmm. But as our numbers have increased uh, and, and they have exponentially, yeah, the number of people taking from those systems has exceeded the recovery rate. And, and yeah, and, and on top of that, like the ratio of supply to demand is critical. Yeah, I think that's the whole point of it, right? So to summarize in the simplest terms possible, we're only able to manage these shared goods, these commons, when population density is low. So think about it significantly. <laughs> we, we, we abandoned the commons in food gathering because we, I mean, right, we started enclosing farmland. We started restricting pastures and hunting and fishing areas because we realized as the population increased, the commons were not sustainable. They had to either be managed or they, had to, they were going to be expended. Right, right, and since since you're bringing up managing commons, I want to point out that there there are only really three ways to solve a a tragedy of the commons scenario, okay. and, and each has its own unique drawbacks. So we can privatize it and make it a a for profit commodity, um, but this increases the cost of goods for everyone, right? So things that that you used to get for free, you're now having to pay out of pocket for. Like like water, Pete. Like water would be an excellent example of that. Yes. All right. Okay. Okay. So you can also have the government regulate the resource. The, the government can step in. Yep. That's right. That's right. The, the, uh, but the government, uh, regulation won't be worth it if they're not able to enforce it. Right. So having a law on the books is essentially toothless if there's not the resources and the willpower to enforce those laws. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then, then the, 
the final agreement is, or the final, the final scenario is an agreement between all the users um, to preserve the resource. They have to act collectively. They have to agree. Right. Right. Okay. So that collectivism that you're talking about normally results in limiting access to the resource to only those obligated by the agreement. So this like forces the hand, like you're reducing the number of people in competition for this resource. Yeah, right. And and we don't we don't need to look any further than than the northwestern US and and Canada to see an example of this. The the Hutterite communities there live by a communal code that okay. that um that you may find familiar. Okay. And it's from each according to his ability to each according to his needs. That is that is that Marx, Carl specifically not Richard. Right. Well, yeah, they're, they, I often get them confused. Um, yes and no. Yes and no. Uh, Marx did say it for sure. But for, for this deeply religious community, they're pulling their guidance from the Bible. Okay. They're committed to a communal form of existence and they appear to have unmanaged commons. But what they do is control how many people are in a community. They've seen that as the numbers approach 150, mm -hmm. individuals start to underperform and become more of a strain on the system than what they contribute. Through hundreds of years of lived experience, the Hutterite communities understand that the norms for their chosen societal structure mm -hmm. only hold up when the population of the community is at 150 people or less. Wow, that's amazing. Hey, that's like their sweet spot, right? Yeah, sweet. No, sweet spot's the exact right way to put it, right? Uh -huh. When the numbers get too large, the likelihood of one or more community members starting to act in their own self-interest goes up and, and the fabric of society unravels. That's so interesting to me. So of course, my mind goes to figuring out the sweet spot using math. And these people, of course, are figuring it out. Like intuitively, they, they just get that the 151st person is like a pox on their, on their yeah. system. Um, but because I'm a math person, you know, this definitely makes me think of some models that were run by researchers using game theory. Oh, because, okay. Because we, I mean, yeah. So I love that we have this like in action, like on the ground example, and then the mathematical models, of course, are backing it up. So this experiment that I'm thinking of, the way it was constructed was the subjects all benefited from being a generous contributor to a public cachet. And wow. it was shared among all the participants, but there was this chance that the generous contributors would be taken advantage, would be taken advantage of by selfish actors, right? Like, you know, this, this kind of happens in our society. Yeah, sure. So the researchers then manipulated the size of the group participating in the exercise. And lo and behold, what do they discover? The larger the group, the less likely there's going to be cooperation. So the, so the research backs up the the Hutterite model. Yeah, absolutely. This definitely is not limited to just small indigenous religious communities. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think we've sensed this in our own worlds, right? Right. As the numbers grow in these models, the chance of having selfish actors in the population grows, right? It's just you're gonna you're gonna have more bad apples. And having one selfish actor cause the rest of the group then to become very much more protective of their own self-interest. They felt like they had to sort of hunker down. And and, and acting in their own self-interest is what leads us to overgrazed pastures, stolen water, and 
even parking lots with straight cars. It, it absolutely does. Yes, it absolutely does. hundred percent. Wow. For different reasons too. It's very interesting. I'm reflecting back on this whole thing. Yes, exactly. Either like I'm out front sort of being like a selfish person or I see other people doing it and it puts a thought in my head or I have this sort of like, I, I got to hold on to what's mine. You know what I mean though? I got to like right. wrap my little arms around it. Yeah, exactly. But the, but the end result is exactly the same. Yeah. 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 Ruination. Yeah. I will be thinking about it all freaking week. Yeah. All right. As we hope everyone else is. Yes. So yeah. we, we have definitely covered a lot in this discussion. I think that we've only scratched the surface on this issue. I, I think that there's definitely more we could talk about. Yeah, I, I totally agree. So, so let's continue the conversation on social media. Mm -hmm. okay. okay. You can, you can find us at ThinkSigPod on Instagram and Twitter and by searching for Think Significantly on Facebook. We'll have our shopping cart poll posted there and we'd love to hear from you. Mm -hmm. Tell us where you've seen these concepts in action. You can also give us ideas for things you'd like to hear about in upcoming episodes. Right. Tell us what we haven't covered in this. What are we missing? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, there's so yeah. much more to talk about. Right. Mm -hmm. Other examples would be fantastic. Like, I'd love to hear about other things. Sure. So Pete and I will be back to discuss a new topic next week. Until then, we encourage you to continue thinking significantly about the world around you. Na, 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 na.